invite you again to turn to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. This morning's message is a follow-up to yesterday's messages. Yesterday we were looking at Mark 8, specifically verses 27 to 38. The first message was about the central question, who is Jesus? And then we also saw Jesus saying what he must do, suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and rise again. And in the second message, we were considering the demanding call of Jesus when he calls people to follow him, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And then the third message yesterday, we were considering that following Christ is worth the cost, even the highest cost. And we saw that in verses 35 to 38 of chapter 8. The unifying theme being that of following Christ worth the cost. And we're now turning to a well-known account, the account of the rich young ruler. Christ called this young man to follow himself. Eternal life and treasures in heaven are freely offered to this young man. And what we find, tragically, is that he walks away. Let me read these verses again. Mark 10, 17 to 22. Speaking of Jesus here, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, All these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." Let's again seek the Lord's blessing and help. Our God in heaven, we thank you that we can come before you as children coming to a father, that we can even come with boldness through Jesus Christ. And so we come to your throne of grace and we ask that you would bless now these moments in your word as we open your holy word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and give us help Give us help to understand and to receive your word and to benefit from it and that Christ would be magnified, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, the message of our text, if we understand it, is really an uncomfortable one, an uncomfortable message. There are many texts in the Bible that are intended to bring comfort, especially to those who are weary and those who are downcast. So, for example, we'll look in the afternoon at such a text that's intended to bring comfort. But this text is intended not to comfort. As many texts and scriptures are, in the best possible way, they are meant to trouble us, to make us uncomfortable. And yet, in the hope, if we need it, of waking us up. So the text before us is a text 
like that. It's a remarkable account. The rich young ruler, he's often called. It's a remarkable account. You find it in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. And it's a sobering account. A sobering account. It should cause us to think seriously about what really matters in life. It deals with ultimate realities, with inheriting eternal life or not inheriting eternal life. And so it demands our careful attention. It's sobering, but it's also challenging. This text challenges us this morning, each of us to ask the question about our own values. What is it that we value most? Or we could put it another way. Where is my treasure? What matters most to me? It's sobering, it's challenging, and it's tragic because this man walks away. Unless he repented, this young man did not inherit eternal life. He went away sorrowful, says Mark, for he had great possessions. So what did he do? He forfeited true riches for his great possessions. He would not give up his earthly riches to have treasures in heaven. Now, the context of this account provides clues to its interpretation. We were talking yesterday about the importance of context. Well, it's the same here. As I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record this account. And each time after this account or before this account, we have the account of Jesus blessing little children. Now, that might be a coincidence, but I don't think it's a coincidence. We're meant to see a connection between Jesus blessing the children and this young man. So recall that little children were brought to Jesus for a blessing. They weren't sick. They couldn't understand Jesus' teaching. They were brought simply for Jesus to touch and to bless them, to pray for them. The disciples stopped people probably parents, from bringing these little children. Luke calls them infants. So they're carrying these babies to Jesus, and the disciples, no doubt meeting well, are stopping these parents or other loved ones who are bringing their babies to Jesus. Because in their mind, they're probably thinking, why waste the teacher's, the, the teacher's time? They're not sick. They don't need healing. They can't benefit from his teaching, so they're turning them away. But, but Jesus saw it differently. Jesus, we read, was greatly displeased at them when he saw this going on. And he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. He goes on to say, of such is the kingdom of God. Of such as these little babies being brought to me. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God is made up of the childlike. And then he adds this solemn declaration in verse 15. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, what does that mean? Here's how one man describes it. I think he's exactly right. He seems to mean that the children of the kingdom come into it like the children of the world come into the world. Naked and stripped of everything. Into this kingdom, we can enter only as poor and naked and helpless as children enter the world. That we have nothing is the condition that we may have all things. That's the message of these children being brought to Jesus 
And I believe this account of the rich young ruler gives us an illustration of the same point, but a negative illustration. Here is one who would not receive the kingdom like a child and therefore would not enter the kingdom of God. Here is one who would not have nothing in order to have all things in Christ, who would not let go of his possessions and be stripped of everything in order to come to Christ and to receive the gift of everlasting life. But we should consider the wider context, too. What we were looking at yesterday in detail is the wider context in particular. Jesus teaching about discipleship, the demanding call to discipleship, and how he's giving those arguments or incentives to follow him, that it's worth the cost, it's worth the cost. That's also the context we need to keep in mind. Because the demanding call, you will notice, is given to this man. Jesus says, come follow me. Follow me. And he counts the cost. Jesus says, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. He counts the cost and he walks away because to him, the cost of following Jesus was simply too high. So keep this context in mind. We now come to the text. And the first thing that I want us to see in verse 17 is what I'm calling the burning question. In verse 17, the burning question. Our account here begins with a man coming to Jesus with a burning question. And everything about this encounter, the man, his manner of coming, and his question, everything about it is remarkable. Each individual thing, the man itself, his manner of coming, you take each one in isolation, it's remarkable enough. But you combine all three of these things, and it's truly a surprising encounter that Jesus has here. So first, the man. Who is this man who is approaching Jesus? If we only had Mark's account, we might call him simply the rich man. This is the rich man. If we only had Matthew's account, we would only call him the rich young man. And if we only had Luke, we might call him the rich ruler. But we put all of these descriptions together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we get the familiar description, the rich young ruler. This is who is coming to Jesus. The common thing to all three accounts is that he was rich. Here was a rich man. He had great possessions, many possessions. Luke puts it this way. He was very rich, a rich man, possibly by inheritance. In addition to his wealth, to his great possessions, we learn that he had position. He was a ruler, as Luke tells us, Luke 18, 18. He was a man of standing in the community. And he was a ruler probably in the local synagogue. That's what that likely means. And as such, he would have been a prominent and well-respected figure in that community. He even enjoyed a degree of power and authority as a ruler, a synagogue ruler. So he had a lot going for him. He was rich. And he had this position, this authority. And you can add to this fact that he was in the prime of his life. We read in Matthew twice that he was a young man. And this description tells us that he was between the ages of 24 and 40. He was a young man in the prime of his life, having many possessions, high position, and in his prime. And then we could add still more. He was religious. He was a religious man and also a moral young man. 
Just the fact that he's a synagogue ruler would tell us he must be religious, but his question, his deeply religious question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This tells us here's a religious young man. And as to his morality, he gives his own testimony. You see there in verse 20, saying to Jesus, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And he's sincere in saying that. We might say in a word, this was an impressive young man, highly respectable. If his parents were still alive, they would have been very proud of him. Probably everyone who talked about this rich young ruler in his community would have spoken well of him, an upright man, a good man, a man to be followed, a good example. This is the man who comes to Jesus. So now I want to ask, well, what is his manner of coming? How does he come to Jesus? He doesn't come in the midst of a crowd, but Mark tells us that Jesus is leaving town. He's going out on the road. Jesus, he's accompanied by his disciples. They're again on the road. They've been traveling. They've just traveled from Galilee to Perea. So they've gone south to Perea. It would be on the eastern side of the Jordan. And now they're continuing their journey. And their final destination, remember, is Jerusalem. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, has set his face toward Jerusalem, where he knows that he must suffer and die. So they're making their way to that capital city of Jerusalem, where he's going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified. Jesus, Mark says, was going out on the road, and one came running. That's this man. He came running. He chases Jesus down. Why he waits while Jesus is, until Jesus is going out of town, we don't know. Maybe he didn't have an opportunity before. But he chases Jesus down. The thing to note here is that there's nothing casual or laid back in his approach to Jesus. This man is eager. He's not just walking up to Jesus. He is eager. He has a burning question. He's serious. Whatever must be in his heart, it's a matter of extreme importance and urgency. But he didn't just come running. Mark says he came running to Jesus and he threw himself down before Jesus. This rich young ruler knelt before him. The running is surprising, especially in that culture. But this throwing himself down before Jesus is even more surprising. It's unexpected. And this communicates his eagerness again. But also, I think, a degree of reverence and respect for Jesus. So you see the man, his manner of coming. But now why did he come? Well, he had a question. I call it a burning question because it's an urgent question. And it's a question of the greatest importance. And not just for this man. This is the burning question for all of us. For every man, woman, boy, or girl. He uses an unusual form of address. He says, good teacher. It wasn't uncommon for people to call Jesus teacher. But this combination is unusual. Good teacher. There might have been some flattery in that. We don't know. But it seems that this man did have respect. He had possibly heard Jesus preach and teach. And when people heard Jesus... 
They were amazed and realized here is a different sort of teaching. This teaching has authority. So this man probably heard Jesus, probably heard the gospel of the kingdom from Jesus. And maybe that's where he gets this question. So he comes impressed by Jesus and with a sense that Jesus can answer his burning question. That's what he does. He comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to obtain eternal life. Think about it. Here's a man who had obtained much in this life, many things. In terms of gaining the world, he was not lacking. And yet he has this sense that there's something lacking in his life, and in particular that he has not obtained eternal life. So he's asking this question of ultimate importance, This is a matter of importance that nobody can afford to ignore. He's asking about salvation. He's asking about eternal life. He's asking about entering the kingdom of God. And have you ever asked that question? Really asked that question as this man does? Young people especially, does this question at all resonate with you as you see this man coming to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not a question young people often ask. And for that matter, it's not a question that rich people often ask or people that have position in this life. They tend to not think beyond this life. But this man, we need to give him some credit, is thinking beyond this life, though he has so much in this life going for him. When we're young, we tend to think we have our whole lives ahead of us and a long life ahead of us. We talked about this yesterday, that we tend to put things off that are important tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. But one day tomorrow will not come. And we need to reckon with that. One day, our souls and our bodies will be separated. And then what? What will happen? Will it be well with you at that time? What what will happen? Will you have eternal life or will you not? That's the question. That's the matter of ultimate importance that we are confronted with here. We should be asking that. What do do I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Can, Can a sinner be right with God? Is it possible? Is there a way of salvation? And what is the way of salvation? Now, this young man didn't know it, but the answer was staring him back in the face. Staring at him was the one, the only mediator between God and man, the only one that can bring us back to God. Here is the one who himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, but this young man couldn't see it. So that's the burning question, the burning question in verse 17. Next, we see the probing response. The probing response of Jesus in verses 18 and 19. How does Jesus respond? We might call this man a seeker, an earnest seeker. Well, Jesus probes him and he probes his heart like a skillful physician who is seeking to get to the root cause of his patient's condition, probing his heart. Now, Jesus knows his heart. He knows this man's heart. He's not probing this man's heart in order to discover his heart. He wants this young man to discover his own heart. So Jesus probes. And he does so first in an unexpected way in regard to the man's address. He pushes back a bit. 
Remember, the man had said, good teacher. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. What's Jesus doing here? Is Jesus denying that he's good? Is he denying that he's God? Certainly not. He's not doing that. He's asking this man, why do you say this? What's your reasoning? Why are you calling me good? No one is good but God. He's not denying that he himself is God in the flesh. He's not denying his goodness. He's just pressing this man with the central question, who do you say that I am? It's just another way of asking that question. Why do you call me good? He knew this man did not know that he was looking at the Son of God. So he asked him that question. This man was too casual about his use of this word good. He's just throwing out the word good in a casual way. Matthew records that he had done so in another way, said that he had asked about what good thing should I do? Good teacher, what good thing should I do? So this young man needed to be taught about goodness, true goodness. And that's what Jesus does. So not only confronting him with his identity, why do you say that? Who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? But he also wants to confront him with the character of God. Only God is good. So he's saying, young man, you have too low a view of good. You're throwing out this word good. Only God is good. So he's confronting him with the absolute goodness of God. That only God is good. We need to reckon with that. We all need to reckon with who God is. His holy character. And not just that but that we're not good. You see what Jesus is doing? Not only is he saying only God is good, but by implication, he's telling this man, and you yourself are not good because we tend to think we're good. Go ask people on the street if they're a good person. Yes, I think I'm a good person. Generally, I know I've done some bad things, but God is saying we're not good. Christ is saying man in and of himself is not good. Only God is truly and absolutely good. Men need to be confronted with that truth. Jesus knows this, and that's why he brings this truth to this young man. He wants him to know that there's none righteous, no, not one, that there is none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3, 10, and 12. None but God. He alone is good, and he does good. It can only be said of God that he is light and there's no darkness in him at all. Only he is holy, 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 only God. So Jesus is confronting this man with the holy character of God. Have you considered this, that only God is good? Have you really considered the holiness of God, the character of God, his absolute goodness, and that you are by nature not good, but that you have sinned, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore you need a Savior? Jesus is teaching us here, too. We have a lesson by way of example in evangelism, that when we're trying to share the good news with people, we need to do the same thing and confront them with the holy character of God. We can't bypass that. That's essential in our evangelism. So we have a lesson here for us to learn from Jesus' example that we need to confront people with the holy character of God. 
Only God is good. So he's probing, he's probing, but he goes further. Jesus takes this young man to the law. So first, God's holy character, and then God's holy law. Look at verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. It's interesting, we ask, is Jesus teaching salvation by law-keeping, that man can be right by his works? No, he's not doing that. Jesus, of course, knows that nobody can keep the law. In fact, that only he himself has perfectly kept the law. He knows that this young man, who is confident in his law-keeping, has yet to really see his sin and his need. So what is he doing? He's bringing this man before the mirror of the law so that he can see his sin before a holy God who alone is good. You see what he's doing? So he's showing this man his sin by taking him to the law in order that his mouth might be stopped. Again, Romans 3, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. That means nobody will be declared righteous as they stand before God by works of the law. Nobody can save themselves by being good enough and obeying enough. It's not going to happen for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see again how we have a pattern for our evangelism in Jesus. Confronting people with who God is. They need to know that. But also with the law. The law is given. Not as a means of salvation, but to show us our sin, but also to lead us to Christ. So the gospel is good news. It's salvation freely offered in Jesus Christ. But if we're telling people, hey, good news, you can be saved from your sins. If they don't understand that there's bad news, they're just saved from what? What trouble am I in? People walk in darkness and they need to know you have a God, a holy God whom you have offended. And one day you will have to stand before him. You're not right with him. You're not ready for that. There's bad news, but then there's good news. So you see, we need that preparation for the gospel. Tell people who God is. Bring them to the law. Show them how they fall short and have sinned and how awful sin is, even one sin. Notice that Jesus is selective in his quoting of the Ten Commandments. He quotes no commandment from what we would call the first table of the law, which deals with love to God. He's quoting from the second table, which deals with love to man, love to others. But he doesn't do it exactly. He's selective there, too. He adds, do not defraud, but then he leaves off the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Why does Jesus do this? Well, it's possible, as one person has suggested, that he takes this young man where he is surest of himself. He's going to quote these commandments where this young man is going to feel surest of himself. Yes, I've kept those from my youth. I think that's probably what Jesus is doing. But the truth is that this young man was self-deceived. I believe he's sincere. I've kept all of these things. But he's self-deceived. The truth is he never 
kept any one of these commandments. From his youth, he had been sinning and transgressing the law. So Jesus really only needed to bring out one commandment in order to convict him and show him his sin. Have you considered the holy law of God? Have you really looked at it as in a mirror and considered yourself? And asked yourself, have I lived up to this or have I fallen short? Have you considered the law of God, looking into the mirror, seeing your sin, and knowing that the law is not a means of salvation? It's to lead us to Christ. Christ alone is the perfect law keeper. It's amazing to to think about this, to reflect upon it. Christ never once transgressed the law, never once sinned. You and I sin every day in thought, word, and deed, even this day. We sin every day. Jesus never once sinned, not even the smallest sin, if you can speak of a small sin. It's astounding. He was perfect. He kept the law perfectly. And had he not... If he had sinned but one sin, even as a little child, telling a white lie to his parents, then he would not be able to be a savior of sinners. He has to be the spotless lamb in order to bear our sins on the cross for us. So Christ, Christ alone has kept the law entirely. There's no difference, says Paul, Romans 3 again. No difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. If you were here in the Sunday school, I was talking about my friend and how he shared the gospel. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he forgive sinners without just sweeping sin under the rug and and being an unrighteous judge? It's this right here. He freely justifies sinners through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By his grace, it's a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the spotless one. Only those who have received the righteousness of Christ as if it were their own can be seen in God's sight as righteous and therefore declared righteous. That's what's meant by justified in the sight of God. Otherwise, we would stand before God, and if God would mark our iniquities, who would stand? But there is forgiveness with God that he might be feared, as it says in the Psalms. So has the law of God brought you to your knees? Has the law of God brought you to your knees before a holy God? And has it brought you to a Savior? Have you seen your need, knowing that not only are you guilty, but condemned? You can be guilty and never condemned and get away with something in this life. God says we're both guilty and condemned, and the wages of sin is death. So that's the probing response that we see of Jesus here. But thirdly, there's a sad conclusion to this story. Verses 20 to 22, we see the sad conclusion. How does this rich young ruler respond to the probing of Jesus? He's been challenged. He's been confronted with the character of God. Only God is good and you're not good. He's been confronted with the law of God and he should have seen his sin. And he gives that response in all sincerity. Verse 20, answered, said to Jesus, teacher, at least he doesn't call him good teacher again. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. How might you expect Jesus to reply? 
How might you reply to someone who is so self-deceived? You might expect Jesus, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, to begin to show this man the depths of the application of the law of God. So we might expect Jesus to say something like, you say you have never murdered. Well, what about that hatred and anger in your heart? You tell me you've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after a woman? We might expect him to do that, to show the depths of the law's application, but he doesn't do that. We might expect him then to take him to the first table of the law, which he doesn't quote from, and say, have you actually loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength all of the days of your life? Any of those things could have just swept away this man's confidence. He doesn't do this, though. What he does is quite surprising. But first, Mark tells us something. He gives us a little detail, very much like Mark to give these sorts of details. He tells us about the look of Christ. Verse 21, he says that Jesus looked at this man, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, looking at him. The word means to look intently, just like I might look you all in the face and you get uncomfortable. He's looking at him. He's looking at them in the face intently. It's the same word in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. After Peter had denied Christ three times, the Lord turned and looked, no doubt with love in his eyes. So he looks intently at this young man and he loved him. He loved him. He desired to do this young man good. He saw this young man's need clearly. And of course, he understood that this young man didn't see his own need. So when it says he loved him, this is compassion. Jesus' loving heart is being stirred to pity for this man because he sees him as a sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to do him good. Just like when Jesus, he saw so many, he saw the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd, so he would teach them. He would preach the gospel to them. So he loves this man. And then without addressing his self-deception, he speaks. We have that also in verse 21. He says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus places his finger on the root issue. The root issue, the the one thing in this man's heart that's keeping him. You remember how he didn't quote the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. What he's doing now, I believe, is applying the 10th commandment and showing this man that it's that commandment in particular that he has not kept, but that there's covetousness in this man's heart. There's an idol in this man's heart in his life. And that idol, his God, his false God, is his money, his possessions, his things. So Jesus is putting his finger on this one thing. This man's possessions truly have come to possess him. They've gripped him, and he isn't going to let them go. He's not serving God, but as Jesus says in Matthew 6, He's serving mammon. He's serving stuff, riches. You can't serve God and mammon, says Jesus. It's one or the other. And this this man has a God, a false God. But he's not just showing him his sin. He's not just saying you have an idol and here it is. But Jesus is calling him to repent. 
He's calling him to cast away the idol and to turn from it. That's what repentance means, to turn. So he's telling this man, turn from this idol that is keeping you from eternal life and come to me. So he's calling him to repent. We might say that the one thing that he lacked was true conversion. Conversion is faith and repentance. It's all bound up together, two sides of the same coin. This man lacked true conversion. The first thing Jesus is doing is saying, here's your sin. Here's a particular idol that you need to turn from. And he's calling him to repentance. This man had not repented and he had not come in saving faith to Jesus. He asked Jesus for something to do. We might take him to task about that and say, that's not a right way to ask the question. What must I do? But he asked for something to do and Jesus gave him something to do. He said, okay, here's what repentance looks like for you. Take this idol and get rid of it. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. There's a lesson here for us about true repentance. Repentance isn't just turning from sin in general. It's not just this vague idea of turning away. But we are to repent in specific ways. Sins that you know that you have, particular sins, our confession of faith, the confession of faith you all have as, as well as we have in Louisville says that it's every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. This particular sin, you turn from it in this particular way. It's true that Jesus didn't require this of every disciple. He doesn't require this of all disciples. We know that Zacchaeus gave up half of his goods, and we could give other examples. And yes, Jesus does not require us all to go and sell all that we have and give it to the poor, but we ought not to comfort ourselves too soon. Because remember, this is given not to make us comfortable, but to make us uncomfortable. To make us consider, do I have anything in my life? Is there any idol in my life? Maybe it's riches, like this man. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's position. Maybe it's your desire to get into a certain college and have a certain career. Maybe it's the way your house looks. Maybe it's the car you drive. Maybe it's the approval of your peers. Maybe it's your physique and being strong and athletic. Whatever it might be, you can make a God of these things. So we ought to see this and then ask ourselves and say, God, is there any idol like this in my life that needs to be removed and cast away that I need to repent of in a particular way? So we have here a challenge for us. And we're reminded that what's at stake is nothing less than our never dying soul. Inheriting eternal life or not. You can't hold on to your idols and also receive freely everlasting life. The sober warning in chapter 9, which we've not looked at, is appropriate here. Listen to these words in Mark 9, 43 to 48. Jesus is giving this strong warning to his disciples about causing themselves to stumble to their eternal ruin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not saying literally your hand, but anything precious to you like your hand. Who would want to be without their hand? 
But he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed. He's talking about eternal life rather than having two hands to go to hell and to the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying there's something in your life, young man, that needs to be plucked out and you need to throw it away or you're going to stumble to your eternal ruin. There might be something in your life like that too and Jesus would have you think about that today, to cast it away, to repent and to turn to him in faith. You see that Jesus doesn't just call the man to repent. There's a positive side to this. It's not enough to just forsake your sins. You have to turn to God. He calls the man to himself to follow him to be his disciple, to trust him, to obey him. He says essentially here to this man, repent and believe. So it's not just sell everything, give to the poor. He says, but come, come, follow me. And look at the promise that he gives this man. Come, follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. He's freely offering eternal life, treasures in heaven. He's saying, yes, lose these things, but gain everything in following me. But the man wouldn't do it. Look at verse 22 again. He was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was sad at what Jesus said. The word's pretty descriptive. His face fell. His face fell at what Jesus said to him. And then it says that he went away grieving. Grieving. He was Sad, he was sorrowful at what Jesus said because he had great possessions. So here's a man who had first come to Jesus running with eagerness, with his burning question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in the end, he's walking away sad from Jesus. He's grieving. Notice he's not protesting. He's not angry. He's not saying to Jesus that that's crazy, you're wrong. He knows Jesus is right. That's why he's sad and grieved. He knows Jesus has put his finger on his idol and that he needs to repent and that it's going to be costly. And he counts the cost and he walks away. And Jesus just lets him walk away. And God forbid that he would do that to you, that you would hear the gospel again and again and there would be a day when you're just left to yourself. We don't know if this is the end of this young man's story. I hope it isn't, but it very well might have been that he never repented and that he lost his soul forever. It's a sobering thought, and we ought to think about it. He went away. He went away. Just think about those words. He walked away from Jesus. Eternal life is held out to him, and he walked away. The Savior says, come to me, and he walked away. And may it not be said of any of us here, That as the gospel is preached, as Jesus Christ is freely offered in the gospel, that we went away and left it and went back to our stuff. Jesus 
today says, come to me. Come, receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Naked, stripped, with empty hands, in full dependence upon Christ. Receive the kingdom of God. Receive eternal life. Let me end by telling you about another young man who encountered Jesus. And this is a young man who concluded that Jesus is the pearl of great price and it's worth selling everything to have him. And he left all to follow Christ. And this young man is a man named Saul. We know him as the apostle Paul. Philippians 3, you can turn there if you like, but I want you to consider this other example. Philippians 3, and I'll read verses 7 to 11. It's a striking contrast. Paul at this time, he was a young man who had a lot going for him. He had quite an impressive resume, which he actually lists here for us. I'm not going to read that, but he's, he's just saying, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, it's me because I had a really impressive resume. But he says, it's nothing to me. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, they were once in my gain column, he says, Those these, the, these things I have counted loss for Christ, for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He's not just talking about head knowledge, but really knowing Christ personally, relationally, communing with him, having life in him. For the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had counted the cost. He came to a different conclusion. In the world's eyes, Paul was a loser. And that rich young man, he was the winner. Paul's in prison here. Paul has suffered many things, has been beaten. If you could see Paul's back, anyone looking at him and not understanding the prize that he has would say, this man's a loser. But where's Paul now? Paul's with the Lord. He's with the Lord, and he's saying it was all worth it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Truly, we have everything in Christ, and we thank you for him. And we thank you for these reminders of him. Thank you even for uncomfortable texts that challenge us and pray that we would have clarity to see our own hearts as best we can. We thank you that there's a savior of sinners. We thank you that we can know him and have life in him. We pray that this word would not be snatched up by the enemy, but would find soft hearts, receptive soil, and would bear much fruit in all of our lives, those of us who are trusting in Christ, that we would more earnestly seek him and live like Paul to know Christ more and more 
and for some who have yet to receive the gift of everlasting life, that you would draw them to the Savior, bring them to their knees before you, a holy God, and before your holy law, and bring them to Christ and unite them to him forever. We ask in his name. Amen.